0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and this week we're going to hear from both managers of a very interesting fund, Richard Watts and Nick Williamson of Chrysalis Investment Trust. Richard also manages Jupiter UK Midcap Fund and they're both members of Jupiter's small and midcap UK investment team. Chrysalis launched in November 2018 and has seen tremendous growth, now boasting a market cap of around £1.4 billion. The trust invests in a concentrated portfolio of mainly unlisted high growth companies, but its aim is to own them through flotation. As many companies are coming to market later, the idea is that they can capture growth early. Nick, Richard, thank you for joining me. That's Now, as Chrysalis is quite an unusual trust, please, can you kick off by explaining the thought process behind the funds and what type of companies you look to own? Richard, perhaps you could start us off.
2: Yeah, Marion, I think, um, you know, the genesis of Chrysalis really goes back to 2017. Um, on our small and mid-cap funds that we manage, you know, we, we historically have been very active in the IPO market in the UK. Uh, if you think around, or historically anyway, around 99% of all IPOs in the UK uh, come into the mid and small cap market. So it's very rare that the stock IPOs and go straight into the FTSE 100 so as the largest desk in the middle small cap market, we've been very active in that IPO space. And we were positioning ourselves as uh, what we kind of call uh, cornerstone investors. So we would take uh, a large uh, position in IPOs or companies that we liked at the point of IPO, effectively cornerstone in the IPO, de-risking the whole process. When you position yourself as a cornerstone investor, you are engaging with these companies 3, 6, 12, 18 months before an IPO depending on the situation. And so by definition, those companies are still private businesses. And we were increasingly realizing that more and more of the companies that we were seeing had been staying private for longer, and that some that actually you know we were meeting that were exploring their options around an IPO that subsequently were deciding to stay private. In the middle of 2017, so May 2017, I met a company called The Hack Group, uh, now known as TSG. And I met Matt Moulding, and uh, that was really just to have a chat with Matt around his options, you know, around an IPO. And it became clear really within 10 minutes of the meeting that an IPO was a number of years away. And I decided that actually I went back and I saw the team, and I said, look, I think I found a very good investment for us, but it's private. And we decided to invest in the business whilst it was still private. And that was our first private investment. Uh, We then followed that up. Uh, So, we made that investment in October 17. So, it took a number of months to do the due diligence. Uh, We then invested in TransferWise, it was now called Wise Group, but TransferWise in November 17. And we realised that if we wanted to do more investing in private companies, given their illiquid nature, that we needed a more appropriate ownership vehicle. And that is basically where Chrysalis came from. So, Nick and I test marketed Chrysalis in December 17, launched it, as you said, in uh, November 2018. But the idea really was to say that if companies were choosing to stay private for longer, you know, why not why could we not access these companies, you know, whilst they were still private and you know, why wait for an IPO when a lot of the value that these companies were creating, you know, that we were missing out on? So that was the idea of Chrysalis really, was to you know, to create a vehicle that could allow our clients to capture the value that these fantastic, you know, very fast growing, innovative, disruptive companies were creating.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds like a similar approach to um, what Scottish Mortgage is doing at, in one portion of its fund. One problem can be access to these companies. They have the power to be quite picky on who their owners are. Have you had any difficulty accessing companies you want to own?
2: I think the way we kind of describe it really is that we are providing a differentiated type of capital. So, you know, venture caps, if, if you think about who were the early backers of many of these private companies, you know, seed investors, angel investors, uh, and then venture capital. And, and typically that, that those type of investors, you know, they are looking for liquidity. They are sellers of these equities, certainly at the point of IPO. And as these companies are staying private for longer, that's a growing problem because, you know, they, they need liquidity. They've got finite length of uh, fund lives and so companies are looking to evolve their shareholder registers you know, before an IPO. and there's a gap really for crossover investing and you've seen this uh, develop in the US you know with the likes of Wellington and Leg Mason uh, you know FMR Blackrock etc that's just a different you know a differentiated differentiated type of capital that is able to support companies whilst they're private but also um, across you know, through the IPO and into the public market, So we are very much seen as one of the leaders in the IPO space in the UK, and because we've now built up a vehicle that's got real scale in the private space in Chrysalis. So, you know, the market cap of Chrysalis now is you know around £1.4 billion. So we've built up a real scale in that part of the market as well. So I, I think we are seen um, to be uh, very attractive to a number of entrepreneurs we're definitely viewed as long-term investors. You know, if you look at the listed funds that we manage or the augmented funds that invest in listed equities, you know, men, many of the companies in our portfolios we've been in there since the very early days, you know, post an IPO. So I, I think we are seen to be um, very attractive, really, for entrepreneurs seeking you know, new investors on their shareholder registers. So I'd to have access to investments. You know, I think we've got a very attractive portfolio. You know names like Klarna, uh, WeFox, obviously Wise Group, TSG. You know, Starling Bank. You know, they absolutely tick the box as being being. I think some of the most desirable private you know companies. Obviously, some of the IPO'd now, but you know when we invested, they were private. Uh, absolutely, been seen as some of the most desirable private companies, not just in the UK but you know pan Euro and, and, and globally. So, yeah, I, I think we find that access is, um, is 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 pretty easy for us.
0: I might just add to that, because I think the market has developed somewhat over the last few years, hasn't it, Richard? Because I think even when we started, I think there were a number of companies that we approached who kind of understood this whole idea of crossover, and they they got the idea, and they thought, well, actually, I can align myself with a natural bar of listed equity. And of course, the wider desk runs sort of £7 billion in that place where most IPOs occur. They, they understood the, the rationale for joining up. you know, And I think over the course of the last few years, more and more companies have begun to understand the power of that crossover investing so more and more people are looking for this type of money so i expect this area of the market will continue to grow in importance and i think that's really key because to get into names like planer or TransferWise wise or Starling, you, you kind of have to turn up and you can't just give them money because there's lots of capital out there the private market is has got a lot of capital in it what those guys are looking for and girls is a different type of money money which they can use to help them develop the next stage of their business and that might involve an IPO down the road and so teaming up with somebody you know like us with chrysalis and with wider desk products um, operating in different spaces like the listed market is very appealing
1: i want to ask some specific um, questions about companies later but before i do that you raised around 300 million in march have you deployed all of that
0: We've we've announced a number of investments since then so uh, we've announced an investment in Smart Pension um, we've done. We've, we've announced an investment in Revolution um, in Revolution Beauty that we've done. We've announced an investment in Deep Instinct. So, you know, when you add all that up together, you know, we, we've spent a reasonable amount of that. In, ter- in, in, in addition, we've also made follow-on investments in WeFox and in Starling. So if you did all, the, all those maths, uh, I think I'm right in saying we probably spent around about half of it, maybe a little bit more it's one of those things, you know, you raise the money and you have a pipeline and it's a bit like buses. The pipeline might be very full, like three come along at once, but equally having the money on your balance sheet tends to accelerate the deal flow because people recognise you have money and they come to see you to talk to you about things. So, you know, we've always deployed money pretty quickly. I think on average, we've we deployed 75% of proceeds in sort of six-ish months, something of that ilk. And again, you know, we've we're been pretty quick on the deployment here, but, you know, the, the key is, Making sure that the criteria that we invest to, and the quality of the deal flow that we are investing in, still remains extremely strong. That is, the, that is the lifeblood of Chrysalis, Is making sure we get those investments right. So we have a lot, a lot of money. We have, we have deployed quite a bit of it. We did have quite a decent pipeline beforehand. But the kind of key message I want to get across to to the listeners is that you know at no point we will be compromising on our thresholds of quality, if you like, just to deploy money.
1: Quite a lot of people worry that valuations in late-stage ventures are quite frothy at the moment. There was a recent Money Week article saying that the prospect of early flotations may be encouraging crossover investors to overpay and encourage overconfidence. Do you worry that you might have overpaid for any of your holdings?
2: No, is the short answer. Oh, look, it's always the case. I mean, through my entire investing career, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years. There are always stocks that are overvalued, and likewise, there are lots of stocks that are undervalued. And you know, our, our job, quite simply, is to not overpay for anything. And I know it sounds quite, you know, kind of trite, but 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 ultimately, that's what we're here to do. And you know, there, there's a lot of wonderful opportunities out there where valuation isn't the most important consideration. You know, where entrepreneurs and founders are looking for partnerships, and uh, you know, we are trying to position ourselves you know, in those opportunities where, you know, these entrepreneurs and founders recognize the benefits of having a long-term supportive partner such as ourselves. So it isn't all about valuation. And, yeah, you know, I, I agree there are lots of valuations out there that are very full, are very expensive. But then I suppose if you look at our portfolio, and this is one of the reasons why we pull the numbers out, but, you know, if if you look at, you know, Klarna is a great example, you know, for most of the period of ownership that we've owned Klarna, it was valued on seven to eight times forward um, EV to sales multiple, where the listed peer group was on about twenty. The recent fund uh, funding round that uplifted the valuation to forty-five billion dollars valued the business on about thirteen times forward EV to sales, so still at a big discount. If you look at WeFox trades at a huge discount versus the most obvious listed peers. If you look at Starling Bank again, we've given you know we pulled all of these numbers out, but Starling Bank is a bank that's capable of generating. Significant profits so in, in in the hundreds of millions of pounds, given the size of his balance sheet today, and that was last valued at one point three billion pounds and so so again, I think if you look at the portfolio that we 've got, I actually think it looks attractively valued versus listed peers. The one difference or the key difference really is the rate of growth and you know on a blended basis uh, revenue growth across the portfolio is just under eighty percent, so eight zero that is much much faster than listed markets and listed peers. So I think what I suppose am saying is is that we've got a very very fast growing portfolio, where the valuations of most of the major assets you know in the portfolio are at discounts to listed peers, um, and you know we've you know, publicly disclosed that information. So so yeah, look, I think we feel pretty good about our portfolio.
0: Right, and I think the other point of that is that we always value and we always benchmark against our listed market experience. So it's not a bootstrapping exercise for us where you know one venture capitalist pays 100 and the next one pays 200 or what have you, and it, it sort of moves up in a, in, a, in a bootstrap example. For us, it's about looking at the characteristics of each individual investment and, and using our experience, saying, well, if this was listed in the market, what would it be valued at? And applying that to the entry price such that we feel comfortable that as we go towards an exit, we're going to be on the right side of market multiples.
1: Just to clarify for listeners, the NAVs published quarterly – and that can be part of the reason why the premium and discount can can vary quite significantly from the NAV. Is there anything that would you hope to publish the NAV more frequently if you can compare it with listed peers? Would that be something you might try yeah, to do?
2: I think um, it's something that we've explored, Mary. Um, you know, we, so we publish the NAV every three months. And the, the reality is that you know the process, so typically, it takes companies about a month to prepare the financial statements that you would you know use in your valuation process. So let's just say, for example, it's a June uh, quarter end, so you would typically get the financial statements you know towards the end of June, maybe at the beginning of July. You then have to send all of that data off to the external valuer, and we use IHS market. and then they would then obviously turn you know the the valuation process around, and that has a time lag of two to three weeks. So by the time all of that happens, you know it can take up to two months. So typically we publish, you know, uh, around two months after the period end. You can make it quicker. Um, there are ways of making it quicker. So do you have to use, say, the June financials? Could you use the May financials, but with June period end comparable multiples and make adjustments here and there if something specific has happened in that last last month of a of a period? Yes, yeah, so look, Mayor, I, I suppose for us, I think. Yeah, you know, we are looking at ways of making it quicker. Uh, we haven't decided anything, but it, it can be done more quickly, but there is a reason for the delay. It's, it's, it's not because we don't want to get it out more quickly. You just have to follow a process. I would say, though, you know, coming back to the NAV, you know, it is important that, um, to understand that there is a delay. So the NAV that is out there today, you know, that's actually the 30th NAV, you know, the 206P or so. and And since that, you know, since that point in time, we've had a significant um, valuation uplift in Klarna, which was announced in June, and then obviously we've had the recent IPO of Wise, um, and we put statements out on both of those. So, you know, Klarna we said that the gross uh, uplift, if the value of values it at, at that funding round, would be um, around twenty p a share, and then we said with Wise that at the March period end, we had an eight percent of the portfolio invested in Wise. At a valuation of 511p a share, and I think the share price today is somewhere in the region of 970 980p. So, again, you know, the share price there is significantly higher than the carrying value in that Marsh Nav.
1: Klarna is your biggest holding by a significant amount, and is, as you said, 45 billion. It's a a big company. How involved do you get with management of your holdings, and is there a risk of ever feeling? powerless maybe the wrong word but dwarfed by big private equity partners calling the shots well
0: i mean yeah i think the, the, the honest answer to that is that it is slightly horses for courses and in certain companies if you take graph or for example which are designing a a new type of microprocessor to be used with um for artificial intelligence applications deep learning etc i have to say you know richard and i's kind of skill set does not lie in helping them to develop a, a a, a microprocessor whereas if you take companies like Starling etc which is in banking and you know Richard and I have invested in our public funds in banks for you know for years we have a good understanding of maybe the ecosystem um, within the UK and the kinds of attributes that investors value highly within those types of financial assets and so our ability to help companies like Starling to to, to navigate strategically towards the towards the, the, the optimum solution for potentially a listing or or, or whatever in the form of time is much higher. So the honest answer to your question is that in certain businesses we are much more actively involved at a strategic level on board than others. You know, nearly all of the businesses that we operate um, or partner with, we have either you know the ability to appoint board members or are board observers on them. You know, certain companies obviously you can offer more you know strategically than others because of your skill set, but it is really a you know a question of forces for courses. And when we when we go into investments, we look at the structure of the of the of the share capital table, we understand our position within that. We also understand the positioning of the unit within Chrysalis Investments itself in terms of the risk that we're taking. All of those attributes and, and, and points Going to the mix in terms of deciding whether we invest or not, at what the valuation is, do we feel comfortable with our position in the share capital table? Do we feel we we'll have enough influence on in the board to, to achieve the agenda we might want? Whether it's kind of an ESG angle we want to push, or or more strategically with with the company as a whole, so all of that goes into the mix. And the honest answer is that it it depends on, on you know depending on which type of company we're looking at. But I think for a number of our companies, we are pretty active with them and i think they value the opinion that we have particularly because it tends to come with a public market angle which ultimately most of them are looking to you know to try and list
1: do you ever worry that given the ipo market is quite hot at the moment that some companies might risk listing too early in their development
0: not really because i think you know again this at that particular point we are usually quite vocal and have quite a quite a weighty voice at that at that point in the proceedings you know and i think most most entrepreneurs recognize the right time to float their businesses there can be pressure uh, on them to float earlier and that pressure typically comes from venture capitalists or maybe private equity companies operating as a minority investor so when we say private, private equity obviously the, the you know majority buyout is the typical private equity structure but a number of them have recognized that you know, businesses like Klarna, for example, if they want to get involved with them, they'll have to accept a minority position. And as those units have got bigger and bigger, and as, as companies have typically stayed private for longer, so those units have an opportunity to become bigger. Yes, there becomes a, sometimes a, a drive by certain investors to, to push for exit. You know, Christmas is set up to, a, to make it agnostic between private and public ownership, specifically for that reason. Um, But pressure can mount. And I think, you know, it is an ongoing debate that we can have at board. And and again, as as I say, I think, you know, we have strong voices at that point about the right time to float. But in the businesses that we're invested in, you know, we've not really been exposed to that type of scenario occurring. I think it's because of our understanding of where the investment case is. and, and, And it's ensuring alignment with the executive team of the company you're investing in and other investors at point of our investment. Such that we all have a pretty clear view as to as to the likely path, you know, of, of 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 development of the company.
1: That's a good point. Um, how often is the next stage of development priced in, Richard? Just because I noticed when um, Lloyd's announced that they had bought Embark Group, that that you put out a statement saying that that wouldn't affect the NAV. Is that often the next stage is sort of priced into to what you're buying?
2: Uh, it depends. Really, I suppose is the answer. So, some something like a, you know, an embark, as we say, we, you know, we we've had sight of that transaction for a number of months, really. So, yeah, so that that was taken into account. You know, elsewhere, it, it depends. I suppose is the answer. So, you know, the valuation methodology typically is backward looking. So, kind of you know trading twelve month financials you know, trading tra- tra- twelve month, you know, valuation metrics. And then of course it does lead to you know certain situations well, what if you what if you've got a company that's done some MA and could that MA be transformational? And the answer is, well, it it, it could. And it, it would then tend to feed into the valuation through time as the benefit of would say that M A started to filter in. So I, I think it's part of the reason when you actually look at Chrysalis, you know, when we've had valuation uplifts, in names like Klarna or in names like Wise you know, a, a lot of it does reflect the fact that the valuation methodology is typically backward-looking, and you know the reality is pretty much all investors, you know, are not really interested in what happened last year. You know, they're more interested in what, what's going to happen next year, the year after, and and, and the years beyond that. So, I, I would say that the valuation methodology, for that reason, is pretty conservative.
1: And you might have some tailwinds from the re- the levers the government's been trying to pull recently. We've had the Hill Review where they're talking about relaxing listing rules and the investment big bang to encourage investment in private um longer-term assets you released a statement saying you'd been engaging with them on that just wondering what your thoughts are and what what the substance of that is, those engagements are
0: you know as a very active market participants in the IPO space in the listed market you know we feel strongly and have felt strongly that we want to have a, a as vibrant as an IPO market as possible in the UK. I think it's the lifeblood of the market and particularly, you know, both of us, well, Richard still runs his, you know, listed fund. I I I um, handed over the reins earlier this year of mine to focus on Chrysalis. Um IPO rejuvenates the market and you know the UK market, the wider markets, you know, there, there is a lot of I wouldn't want to say legacy business, a bit kind of traditional business of big miners and big oil companies and big mobile telcos and bits and pieces which you know are not maybe as dynamic and growing as quickly as some of the younger businesses which you know typically haven't not all of them have listed yet trying to encourage those types of businesses to list in london and give uk investors the opportunity to invest in them you know i think we feel very strongly um about you know and i think when we look at things like you know so there's there's pros and cons to dual class listings you know, some certain golden shares in certain points. Uh, um, but I think for us, it's about ensuring that entrepreneurs feel comfortable listing their businesses there and equally respecting corporate governance such that these things do have, you know, for example, golden share, THG had one. You know, that is time limited such that um, that protection falls away within three years so that you can have, I don't want to use a Borisism, but you can sort of slightly have your cake and, and, and eat it at the same time. But making the UK market attractive is definitely going to be of benefit to um, to the wider you know, UK investor. And to that extent, we participated, or Richard participated in the Hill Review. We have been discussing with government some of their views about, particularly around listing and, and what should and shouldn't go ahead. The wider UK government policy drive is to try to persuade more investor to look at what they call long-term assets which effectively are liquid assets so such that the ones that Christmas are invested in because I think government is you know is recognizing the fact that the majority of the investment that's gone into these types of businesses has been from outside the UK so very very active um, venture capital um, market obviously in places like Silicon Valley a lot of that money is now looking at further afield And, you know, just because you've got a a great business in the UK doesn't mean it won't be very big in the US as well. So a lot of these companies have moved overseas to to look for opportunities outside America. And so the funding for a lot of British startups has come often from from, from outside the UK. And I think the government is keen to try and keep that onshore, if you like. So, you know, we're not waving the sort of jingoistic flag too aggressively, but I think, you know, we agree. And I think Chrysalis, you know, not only to be, push the crossover angle, but I think the form of Chrysalis is really important because that gives individual investors, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, an opportunity to buy shares in Chrysalis. And Chrysalis has the key to unlock some of these investments in big companies. It allows Mr. and Mrs. Smith to own a bit of Starling Bank or a bit of Wise before it was listed or, you know, a bit of feature space. And these are assets, you, you know, unless you're very privileged and have a family office with, millions of pounds being run for you it's very very hard to get into these types of investment and so being able to open up and offer these investments is what Christmas is all about and I think what the government is looking at now is trying to make it easier for people to invest in these asset classes you know more widely and I think you know generally we are pretty supportive of that we think it's fair.
1: Richard do you have any tips for investors on how you could spot if an IPO is going to do well or not?
2: Oh yeah I, I think um I'll, I'll look look i I think for us you know the the IPOs that uh, over the years have done very very well for us, um, you know like mids and smalls, you know we we want to invest in companies that are growing quickly that have the capacity to continue to grow strongly. What you find or tend to find with the stock market is you know they always it always fades the rate of growth too quickly. So you need to find businesses that have you know, some kind of sustainable competitive advantage, whether it's you know their unit economics or whether it's the, the IP around their product or service, but, but something that gives a sustainable competitive advantage that allows a business to carry on growing more quickly than people anticipate or expect. And typically when we've invested successfully you know, through, through IPOs and private businesses, it's the sustained rate of growth that has really driven uh, outsized investment returns. So, yeah, and we've seen it years ago. I always remember looking at, you know, right more years ago um, when, when we invested in that business at IPO, exactly the same. You know, the market didn't back the sustainability of the growth and it, it was that sustainability of the growth that really drove, you know, the share price. So, you know, that, that's probably probably the key characteristic, I would say, you know, to look out for.
1: Now, I want to ask some specific questions about companies. We've mentioned Klarna quite a lot. It's a buy now, pay later app, and it's now the biggest private fintech company in Europe. Critics allege that these schemes can encourage overspending and can potentially damage customers' credit histories if they fail to keep up on payments. Some see <laughs> comparisons with payday lenders. What are your thoughts on this? Like, How many people are struggling to repay and what are your answer to people that criticise the business model?
2: Yeah, I, I, think sort of, I think so first you're sort of stepping back, really. And I think if, if you look at what the proposition is with Klarna, so it's this three kind of product areas. You know, you can pay now, which obviously doesn't involve any kind of credit. Uh, pay later, which is typically paying 30 days. Uh, and then the third area is pay installments, typically is paying in three to four installments. Pay later, which is a very popular product, um, is interest-free. So I would say, in terms of proposition, you know, nothing, nothing like you know, payday lenders where, oh God, you know, the the annual rate of the APR was astronomical. So it's a merchant-funded solution. You know, someone's paying, but it's not the consumer. So uh, why, 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 why is it attractive? Um, is when, when you think about what the proposition is. You know, before buy now, pay later, a consumer will pay for a product. They often send it back. And then obviously their money was tied up for two or three weeks while a refund was processed. So I would say in terms of, you know, what Klarna is doing or Buy No Pay Later is doing is actually solving a re- very real problem for many people is that, you know, many people with, uh, I suppose, lower incomes couldn't afford to have their money tied up for two to three weeks. So I think there's a big sort of, you know, social value really to what the product is doing. The fact is interest-free and it's merchant-funded, So again, you know, it's very, very cost effective. When we looked at Klarna specifically, I think this really comes down to, you know, suitability and affordability. You know, when you're extending credit, effectively, to customers, you know, are you doing it in a, you know, ethical, sustainable way? At the end of the day, you know, we've, Nick and I, over our careers, we've invested in lots of lending businesses. And um, there's nothing wrong with credit. I think we've got to be clear on that. But it has to be extended in a, you know, ethical and sustainable manner. And when we looked at Klarna, that was a big emphasis in our due diligence process. So if you go back to 2013, on an index basis, Klarna's late payment fees, so this is people miss payments, they declined by 83%. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that Klarna, per a period of time, grew more slowly than many other pay now pay later businesses. And that was absolutely fine by us, because we felt that the growth that Klarna was delivering was certainly sustainable and done in an ethical way. So... Look, I think I've got kind of, you know, caution against that, you know, people just, you know, shouldn't necessarily view, just because it's a different form of finance, you know, shouldn't view it as something that is, you know, improper or not being done properly or, you know, whatever the phrase is. You know, lending lending has been around, obviously, thousands of years and it just needs to be done in a proper, sustainable, ethical manner, which we think it is for Klarna. But
0: well, on that bit as well, is if you think about what the alternative is to... to you'd be using a credit card which is a another whole model which is no one would have any issue with credit cards would they but if you think about the credit card model particularly if you're younger you know your APR is probably 40 percent to start with and the people who um fund the credit card companies the people who can't pay who let's face it most people probably roll their credit card and pay it off every month and so the credit card model is 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 is, is founded on the basis that the people less less able to pay are the ones who are funding everybody else and the Klarna model is funded on the basis where the merchant is socialising the credit cost across all consumers, and so if you think about it on that way, actually socially, the, the way in which Klarna is, is 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 approaching the whole idea of credit has got to be fairer than the credit card companies. And weirdly, well, not weirdly at all, really, but most of the vocal noises is coming from the credit card companies because they look at this and think, oh my goodness, this is a big issue for our for our business here because. There's a better model which is being put into place and into play, and so there's a lot of attack going on about it because that because because they they are very very defensive about their current business model, but that's just a view. But it feels like a fair view to me.
1: And Starling Bank, your next biggest holding, how do you view the investment case of Starling Bank compared with rivals Monzo and Revolut?
0: Back in the day when we when we did. Starling when I say back in the day it's only a couple of years ago but it feels like a long time in fintech a couple of years ago when we did the, when we did the Starling investment you know we had met Tom uh, 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 at Monzo a couple of times who had, let's face it built a fabulous model and um you know I wouldn't want to denigrate Monzo but
1: he worked at Starling Bank didn't he, he yes he did
0: yeah. He, initially yeah they worked together that's a whole different story one of which I probably should not go into at this point <laughs> you can read Anne's book if you want on that but um <laughs> Anne Bowden who's the CEO of Starling. But yes, so so, so Tom had started a a business which did extremely well virally in capturing particularly young people, but just new customers. And it built itself very, very rapidly, very, very quickly into something like 5 million customers. When we met Starling, they only had 200,000 customers and a deposit base of 200 million pounds. So it was actually really very, very small in the grand scheme of things. And I think when we met the two and actually was it was talked about in the ft at the weekend what was very clear was that one was run by a very enterprising entrepreneur the other was run by well again another uh, not a good entrepreneur but one with with a lot of banking experience and so when you talked through the styling model it was in terms that we understood as bank investors in terms of tier one ratios in terms of you know, risk-weighted assets, all these types of things. So, so we could see a very clear way when you look at the unit economics of Starling, which did have a slightly different demographic and thus a high unit economic potential. We could see a very clear route to how you monetize that business and bring it to profitability. Whereas I think Monzo, to be fair, at that point in time was all just about growing. And it was slightly like when things, when we got loads of customers, we'll then sort of work out how to monetize that customer base and I think if you read a, an article by Tom a year or two ago, when he was just beginning to sort of leave Monzo and talking about how profit had become a dirty word within Monzo, that's an issue. Because, you know, for us, it's right to have profit in a business because profit makes the business sustainable. And the difficulty with an unsustainable business, particularly in banking, where there's a lot of regulatory capital required, is that, is that pressure builds up from either to, it to be plugged via investors or by, or by profit so you can plug the capital. And, of course, that's what's happened to Monzo, whereas Starling, I think, having come at it from a much more banking angle, although it was seen as the slight ugly duckling, dare I say it, I hope Anne's not listening to this, initially, I think the unit economics of that business have shone through. And as it's begun to scale and it's grown very, very quickly, you know, we now sit here with a couple of million customers and over six billion of deposits two years later, those unit economics have really kicked in, and such that you know you've you've seen the bank move into significant profitability, and it has been profitable for you know every month I think since October last year. I think initially those are the differences that we pulled out, and that was the reason we went with Starling. Is Starling better than Monzo? I believe your your listeners can decide about that. We you know we, we've obviously stuck our flag and in, in in one corner and have been very active and um, of the business, particularly through the last year, which has been pretty difficult for most people, including bankers, dare I say it, um, to help them grow that business um, very successfully. And I think, it's, you know, to Richard's point earlier in, 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 in the in the podcast, you know, as we sit here today, you've got a business which is profitable with a loan to deposit ratio of only 37%, give or take. Most banks operate at 100%. So if you're profitable already, having only lent out 37% of your deposits, if you can get out... The rest of the, you know, sixty three percent out to market and loans, how profitable that bank be? Well, we think would be extremely profitable, uh, and that and that's why really we, we, we went with Starling. So, you know, for our money, obviously Starling is the is the one that we think is going to be successful and the one that we preferred at that point.
1: Starling is the darling.
0: Starling is the darling. Um, I like that. <laughs>
1: Richard Wise, formerly TransferWise, recently listed, is another company that I'm sure listeners will be interested to hear about. I, I noticed last year they would filed to be able to offer investment services and said it would be within the next twelve months. Is that something that's coming up? And what do you think about the outlook for Wise more broadly?
2: Well, th- this is this is it. You see, and again, like if you think about. You know, business like Revely, you know, why 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 was revenue valid at thirty odd billion dollars or thirty-three billion dollars? You know, it's this concept of super apps. You know, these are apps that have millions of customers, um, you know, globally and are still only scratching the surface in terms of market share of the industries that they are um disrupting. And the concept of a super app is that effectively, you know, once you have those customers you can offer them more services. You know, so look, I can't comment too specifically on on Waze, but you know, the reality is they've got a very loyal, fast growing customer base globally. And this is a business that is built, you know, the whole culture of the company is, is is disruption. And actually offering customers a great service at a very low cost. Part of the reason when you think about valuations in this area is why these companies command you know massive valuations. Because if you look at what wise are doing, I think in the retail market, their market share. I think it's probably less than 2%, you know, globally, where they are charging on average 60 basis points fees, 0.6% fee. Whereas if you transfer money abroad using one of the high street banks, you know, by the time you pay a fixed fee and you get, um, you know, you get a, an exchange rate that obviously isn't the spot rate, you know, so there's a embedded fee built into that exchange rate as well. You know, the fee from a bank could be anywhere between 3% and 7%. So, you know, that's 0.6% is massively more compelling. And you also get great service because 35% of money that is transferred anywhere around the world is instantaneous. So it could take days for your bank. You can offer that kind of service proposition in lots of other verticals as well. So, yeah, you know, and obviously people recognize this. So that, that's why these businesses trade a big valuation multiples. It's almost the option value of what, you know, what can they do next? Yeah, so so I, I'd say for Wise, you know, it's a great example of why we wanted to invest in private companies when we first invested in, well, what was called TransferWise back then was in November 2017, and you know I can say it now because it's public, but we invested in the business, you know, the business then at a valuation of one point uh, six six five billion dollars.
1: But you're not going to tell me when I'm going to be able to buy Chrysalis on Wise um another another company that's come to market quite recently um or towards the end of last year was the hut group which is quite interesting there was lots of um excitement around it and the share price went up and it looks like now it's come back down again to around its float price what's nick what's what's gone on there and what's your outlook for the company
0: yeah i I think you know i suppose the try to answer that is that nothing always goes up in you know markets don't always go up in a straight line and i think you know, to Richard's um, comments earlier, that I think you know sometimes um, markets can be a bit short-sighted in terms of the longevity of growth and, and, and the runway that it affords. So you know for, for, for the for the Huck Group particularly, um, you know we were delighted when they when they listed it you know at five hundred p. That that represented a very very good return for us on our initial investment. We're at six hundred p. Now, which is an even better return on our investment. Yes, it did touch nearly eight. 800p, and it and it's tracked back a bit. But you know, for us again, you know, we have the option to to um, retain um, um, listed equity once they float from our from our portfolio, or we can sell it. And you know, we did sell a little bit um, um, uh, back end of last year when the shares went up to a, you know getting towards those highs. We actually bought a bit back um, when they when they made their recent acquisitions and, and, and share placing. You know, for us, this is a journey where we see considerable upside from the um, the rollout of ingenuity uh, it, it, to, to new customers and also significant upside from the MA opportunities surrounding beauty and, and, and nutrition. So, you know, our hope and our expectation is that, you know, the, the shares will continue to perform well over, you know, a multiple period. And if we feel that that is not the case, then, you know, we obviously wouldn't be holding them within the, within the portfolio at the moment. So, you know, sometimes it takes a bit of time to get where you want to go to. And, you know, we, we still feel comfortable that we're on that right
1: track. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but I really appreciate your time. It's really interesting. Yeah, thank you.
0: Uh, thanks, Famous. Yeah,
1: thank you.
0: Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?